0: Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So, kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So, yesterday was a good, good day, right? I mean, we ate a lot of pasta last night, so. Oh, yeah, and we did the thing yesterday morning where we loved each other and the world around us. Yeah, but thank you, seriously, everyone uh, who came out and showed love uh, for the city of Fort Pierce and for our community. It was, it was an amazing day uh, that showed this world, hopefully, just how much Jesus loves them and also that uh, we love them, too. And we like them. Those are two different things, right? So it's good to be loved and liked. So I hope that you found uh, that serving this community gave you uh, a sense of hope that wasn't maybe necessarily there before. Hope is something that's in like short order these days, right? It's not seeming to be going around too much in our world. And so, you know, I found that the best way really to gain some hope, to spark it, in my own life is to, to go out And to spread love and so that's what we we did yesterday and it gives us hope it gives those whose lives that uh, We impact hope and it gives hope to our whole world in some way or another And hope is really what we Jesus people are meant to be in the business of That's really what God wants us to focus our energy on in fact the prophet Micah Uh, when he asks what God really, really requires of us, is really pointing at the fact that we are called to be people who bring hope into our world. And so we're right in the middle of a sermon series called Walk, in which we are looking at uh, Micah 6, 8 in particular, and seeing how it is that God wants us to live our lives. So last week we discussed how God wants us to be a people who are seeking after and doing justice in the world And how that really looks like us starting to undo the the cycles of sin that break our relationships between one another and the relationships within our communities And today we're gonna move on and see what the next direction that Micah gives us is Is And how that really leads us to live our lives And so we're going to go ahead and just read Micah 6, 6 through 8 And kind of refresh ourselves uh, of what we read last week And so Micah says this, he says With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression? Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so, remember that Micah's argument is shaped as a rhetorical question. He, he's basically saying, like, God, what, do you, what does God want from me? Does God want, like, lots of sacrifices and, and lots of, of religious observances? And the answer is no, no. He really wants these three things, that, that you do justice, that you love kindness or love mercy— And that you walk humbly with God. So today we're going to focus on this second and uh, middle piece of uh, what Micah says. Love mercy. Or in this translation, love kindness. But what does that really mean, to love kindness? Well, it's really something that, again, we're just going to have to look at some Hebrew in order to understand. The word translated love here is uh, the word ahava, which is pretty straightforward. It kind of sounds like a magic word, but it's not. It really just means to hold something as the object of our affection, to be inclined towards and hold something in our favor, and then to act like it. Because love is an action word. And so what exactly are we called to show our affection towards and and work towards? Well, that's really the meat of this whole thing. So our English translations, uh, they say kindness or mercy. But this word that they are translating is a Hebrew word, chesed. You know, kind of like spit from your throat a little bit. Chesed. And it's one of the most... Unpronounceable and untranslatable words in the Hebrew language because it doesn't really have a, a good uh, sister cognate word here in our English language. It, it describes something that, that we really need a whole lot of our English words in order to fully encapsulate and describe. But I found that the closest that we can get... To explaining what is meant by this Hebrew word, chesed, in English, is our idea of unconditional love. And so Micah's command is, hold your affection and work towards unconditional love. And that's actually not even super helpful either, right? Because what does that even mean? (laughs) I don't know. Well, it's something that is really best illustrated Rather than explained. See, the word chesed is used 245 times in the Hebrew Bible, which is just another way of saying your Old Testament. And the vast majority of the times that it is used, it is used to describe the love that God has towards human beings. There's a loyalty in God's love towards humans that knows no boundaries. God has proven that much is true, and and throughout the book of Psalms, which is a bunch of prayers of praise and songs to God, God is lifted up as being the God of steadfast love, of loyal love, or of chesed. And so this is really the foundational and core meaning behind this word that Micah uses in telling us how we're called to live our lives. Micah says, love the way that God loves, without condition, steadfastly, mercifully. Because if there's one thing that we should be learning about God from our Bible and from the story of Israel in general is that God is deeply merciful. God should have given up on Israel and really should have given up on all of us humans a long, long time ago. But where common sense says give up on these fools because they're never going to get it, God is not content to escape from us, the people that he loves. God is relentlessly merciful towards them, towards us. And that's a really important aspect of what Micah is teaching us here about how we are called to live. But maybe you're like, well, okay, that's fine. That's easy for God because God is God and I am not. What am I supposed to do with all this? What does it look like for me, for us, frail humans, to love in the way that God loves? What does that look like? I think it's best illustrated by one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of a woman named Ruth. You see, in the early days uh, of Israel's history in the Promised Land, you know, after they're they're brought up out of Egypt and wander around in the wilderness for a while, they they move into the land of Canaan, which was promised to their ancestor Abraham, and they're, they're living there, and it's during this period of time called the Judges, when there's no king in Israel, The story of Ruth takes place. Ruth was the daughter-in-law of an Israelite woman named Naomi. Now, Naomi and her husband left Israel to move to a country called Moab, which was just right next door. And and their two sons grow up and they marry two Moabite women, a woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. Ruth. But suddenly, tragedy strikes, and Naomi's husband, as well as both of her sons, die. And this leaves all three women widowed. And in this situation, and in this culture way back when, there was really only one thing for a widowed woman to do. Return to her family. See, widows were not well cared for in in the ancient world. But families were obligated to take care of their own. And so Naomi decides that she must return to Israel and her two daughters-in-law must return home to their own Moabite families. The hope is that in returning to their families of origin that someone will have mercy on them, take them in and care for them for the rest of their lives. And so Orpah says, all right, you know, I'll, I'll do what you've asked. And she goes back to her father's house. But Ruth, Ruth's like, no, nah, I'm not going back there, man. I, I, don't, I don't like that guy. I don't, know what her, I don't know why she didn't want to go back. Other than she wanted to stay with Naomi. And, and Naomi's like, no, you, you cannot come with me. Naomi knew that, that when they went back to Israel, Ruth faced the possibility of a very difficult life. But Ruth insists on staying by Naomi's side. She says, where you go, I go. And where you stay, that's where I am going to stay as well. And so the two of them set off back to Israel. And when they arrive, Naomi learns that they're somewhat in luck because there is an unmarried man from her family line named Boaz. But she realizes quite quickly, I'm a bit too old for this strapping young lad. But maybe, just maybe, my friend Ruth might be able to catch his eye. You see, the way for women to get back into the family and restore their status, also called being redeemed, was to marry back into the family structure if either her or Ruth was able to marry back into the family structure, then all of Naomi's family's wealth and uh, identity would be restored to her. And so she sends Ruth out to glean or harvest from the edges of the fields of Boaz. This is a, a kind of a, a, a two-part deal, right? One, they get some food, which you need to live. And two, if she's out there kind of stealing... <laughs> from Boaz, maybe he'll catch uh, a glimpse of her and take a liking to her. And he does. They they build this semi-relationship together, and then some time goes on, and, and Ruth finds out that Boaz is working at this place called the Threshing Floor. He's lay, It's late at night. He falls asleep, and so what she does is a very bold thing. She sneaks in to his place of employment, which is also just like another place in his house, right? And she lays down at his feet. And when he wakes up in the middle of the night, she essentially asks him to marry her. It's bold. I kind of like that. She wasn't taking no for an answer. She says, she says, would you please restore me and Naomi to the family life of Israel? And Boaz's response to her Um, isn't like, yo, crazy lady, get out of my house. He says this to her. This is Ruth chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said to her, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for this last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. See, by this time, Boaz has been around Ruth a fair amount, and he's seen the way that she has clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi. He's been asking around. He's found out about this crazy Moabite woman who left everything to follow another widow to a strange land. He's he's heard about how she has given up her secure future with her own family to stay and care for her elderly mother-in-law. He has seen her picking food from his fields in order to make sure that Naomi was fed. And so what he says to her is that he sees her loyalty. And that word that he uses to describe her, it's the Hebrew word chesed. Boaz sees in Ruth an attribute, a means of living in the world that mirrors God's own way of loving human beings. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional. Ruth didn't need to do any of what she did, but her love for her mother-in-law defied logic. It defied basic survival instincts. It defied What was in her own best interest. And the reward for this was that Ruth did eventually marry Boaz. She did restore Naomi's status in Israel. And then Ruth went on to be the great grandmother of King David. The man through whom God continued to fulfill his promise of unconditional love to Israel. And through that same line, the lineage of Ruth and David, came Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of God's unconditional love towards the entire world. You see, what Naomi found in Ruth was hope. Ruth's loyal and unconditional love towards her gave her a hope for a future. God's loyal and unconditional love was the driving force. Of the hope that Israel had and clung to and sung and recorded throughout all of the book of Psalms. The loyal and unconditional love of Jesus is what we as a church today attach all of our hope to here in this messed up world. It's a love that we know. Not because it has been shown to us necessarily by God himself but because it's a love that we have experienced through the relationships that we have with God's people. God's people have shown us what loyal and unconditional love can look like. The people who have shown up and shown interest in our lives and in our development. People who have gone above and beyond what would be expected of them to pour into our lives, to to show us what chesed looks like for us now. And they point us towards the love that Jesus has for us. Parents, teachers, coaches, church members, mentors, bosses, etc. These people poured into us when it it didn't really give them anything in return are the people that show us what it actually physically looks like for us to, to love mercy and to, they instill in us a hope a hope that the world can be a better place if we just put a little bit of effort into it Crystal Jones is a woman who uh worked for volunteered uh, for a program called teach for america which is an organization that goes into super low income places and supplies them with teachers and so so crystal's first teaching gig uh was with a first grade class uh at an inner city school in atlanta and what Crystal found was during the first week of school that was that her uh, first grade students were all over the map, developmentally. Some couldn't even hold a book. Many did not even know their ABCs yet. But most of all, she realized that there is absolutely no way that I'm going to get all of these students to a first grade reading proficiency in just a single calendar year. But Crystal also observed her students and noticed something else that was very interesting to her. They shared a recess time with the third grade class. And what she saw at recess every single day was that her first graders flocked to and look up to and, and just really, really admired the third graders. What she found was that her group of first graders, they really, really, really wanted to be third graders. And so she got to work dreaming and scheming and came up with a plan. And one day she finally got up in front of the class and she declared to them, by the end of this school year, all of you are going to be third graders. And she instilled in them a policy of calling all of her students scholars and encouraging them to address one another with the title scholar and then their name. And every morning they would stand up and they would recite this creed together. A scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at And what happened was a complete turnaround of attitude. The students were united under their new identification as scholars. They worked hard to help each other and to achieve their goal of becoming not second graders, but third graders. Six months into the year, the entire class passed the first grade reading proficiency test. They were reading beyond the comprehension level of first graders. By the end of the school year, they passed unanimously the second grade reading proficiency test. The entire class, for all intents and purposes, were third graders. Crystal saw these students. She saw their nearly hopeless situation, and she made a decision about them. They were third graders in the making. She sold it to them and there was hope that if they lived into their identity as scholars that they would become third graders And then she created a community that supported that hope and it became a reality for them And this is really who jesus of nazareth is is it not the incarnation of jesus christ Is like god coming down to earth and being thrown into a first grade classroom like look at all of these idiots What am I to do with them? Should I just pass on by and like check out the next planet? But he stays and he surveys the classroom. He notices that there are all kinds of different developmental levels. Some know little to nothing about the God of Israel. Some are advanced in knowledge, but they have no idea how to actually practically live that out. No one can pass the kingdom of God proficiency test. Not like this. But instead of just packing it up and saying, these folks are hopeless, they'll never get it, Jesus does the exact opposite, right? He takes a group of folks and he says, hey, you all, follow me. I'm going to turn you into third graders. By the time that Jesus went to the cross, that first ragtag group of first century first graders that he called to follow him, understood and knew enough to carry on his mission. And when Jesus came up out of that grave on Sunday morning, they were given a hope that ignited them to take the mission of Jesus out to a world filled with first graders and turn them into third graders. You know, listen, the reality is that we can't change the whole world uh, on our own. We can't fix everything that's broken, but we can show, like, one person, one group of people, one organization, one class of first graders the type of loyal and unconditional love that Jesus showed this world, the type of love that Ruth showed to Naomi, the type of love that Crystal showed her class of first-grade scholars. It's that type of love that that sparks hope, that gives people something to hold on to when everything seems like it's falling apart. It's in that love that people will see the face of the God who would move heaven and earth to stoop down and meet with them. So the question is this. Where is God calling you to show that you love Christ? That you love mercy, that that your heart is inclined towards loyal and unconditional love of God's people. You know, I hope that yesterday you were given a glimpse of that call into your life. But there's so many more opportunities. Project Love Impact isn't really one day long. It's 365 and sometimes 366 days long in that bonus year. So how are you called to bring the spirit of Project Love Impact, the spirit of God's unconditional, loyal, and undying love into a community that desperately needs to know that God is with them? How are you going to show people the image of God's love? And then, will you step out and seize that call? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your undying love. We thank you that you look at us and you don't see a bunch of first graders. You don't see a bunch of hopeless folks that'll never get it right, but you see people with potential. You see members of the kingdom of God. Those whom you love and have called to go and bring the the light of Jesus into this world. So God, we pray that you would show us how to truly love kindness, love mercy, to do the action showing unconditional love to this world, that you have proven time and time again, you love without condition. That we would be agents of your mercy and love. That the brokenhearted would receive a message of deep and abiding love. That the lost would be found that we, your people, would be moved and stirred to make this world look more like the world to come, to look more like heaven. Help us to make heaven invade this space today and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.